The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 5. Our text this morning is Romans 5, 18 through 21, but uh, really this fits within uh, the, the broader argument of verses 12 through 21, so I'd like to begin reading in verse 12. And to read down through the end of the chapter. It says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin, sin just through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of, the, of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, many of you know that, that I'm a big sports fan. I, I love sports and, and I love to watch sports. I love to watch sports on TV. Uh, but it's a special treat to be able to go to a game live. To be there in the stadium with all the other fans. And there's lots that's great about it. But one of the things that's really fun about going to a game is to be with a bunch of fans who are really passionate about their team. You know, the people that buy season tickets, the people that show up, they care about their team. And, and, uh, and so it's interesting, if you ever go to a professional game or a college game, to see, among other things, uh, you know, just, just all the things they do. I, I uh, I, you know, when we lived in Detroit, I got to go to a couple games at the Joe Lewis Arena where the Red Wings play, and Detroit is hockey town, and, and it was fun to go and, and watch hockey with, with hockey town fans, or, of course, a football game. I mean, there's only a few games every season, so, so football fans are always fired up, and it's a big deal at every game. And, and one of the ways that fans express their passion is oftentimes they dress up. And you see this on TV, right? You know, some guy, you know, shows up and he's dressed like a bear or like a lion or he's dressed like a raider or a buccaneer or dressed like a Viking. And some of those people, some of those costumes are, are pretty intense, you know, and you can tell they've spent a lot of money putting this thing together and, 
and it's pretty, it's a big deal, and, and some of them are a lot of fun. Of course, you've got the people that really dress up, and then you've also got the people that really dress down, right? So I was uh, watching Iowa play at Minnesota two or three weeks ago, and the wind chill at the game was zero degrees. And they showed all these college guys, you know, bare-chested with Minnesota stuff written all over their chests. And you're like, you guys are crazy. You know, but, but fans get excited, and, and they want to express their excitement when they go to a game. But, but, you know, what's interesting about all that is while fans can go to a game, be very invested in their team, they don't actually make any plays that determine the outcome of the game. So, so the best fan base in the world, the most invested fans who are all dressed up, they scream and cheer and they make all sorts of noise, they can go home absolutely disappointed if their team happens to stink. And on the other hand, you can have another fan base that they're really not all that, all, not all that interested. They're you know, just looking at their phone. They're sort of mildly engaged in the game the whole time. And if they happen to root for a really good team, they're going to go home happy. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who has the better fan base. It matters who has the better team. And, um, and, and similarly, Romans 5 teaches that, that all the spiritual effort, all the spiritual passion in the world will not determine where you will spend eternity. Now, just like a football fan can get all dressed up in his team's gear, get excited, cheer, and ultimately have no effect on the outcome of the game. He cannot will his team to winning. So in a similar sense, you, you can work profusely at doing good deeds. You can be the most passionate religious person in the world. And it will have no effect on earning you eternal life. And, and that's because, as we saw last week in verses 12 through 17, when Adam sinned in the garden... He chose sin and condemnation for all his posterity. And there is nothing I can do to overcome the effects of Adam's sin. So if that's the case, how can any of us be saved? Well, well the answer, as we saw last week, is that when Christ came, he created a new race. And when he died and rose again, he, he, he conquered sin and death. And he provided eternal life for all who are in him. So, my eternal destiny is not ultimately based on what I do or how passionate I am about religion. My eternal destiny is ultimately based on whether I am under Adam's headship or under Christ's headship. That is the only thing that matters. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 18 through 21, and they further describe how Jesus fixed the mess that Adam made, and they highlight the power of God's grace. This is another uh, just very encouraging passage, which I hope will, will, will push us to, to, to make sure, first of all, that we are truly in Christ, that we are saved, and from there, that we would rejoice in the gospel rest in the gospel, and trust in the gospel every day of our lives. And the outline of these verses is, is pretty simple. Uh, Paul begins by noting the different consequences of Adam's action and Christ's action. 
And then he concludes with the differences in power between the two. So, so first, verses 18 and 19 describe different consequences. Now, as we, before we jump into verse 18, it is worth noting within the broader flow of the passage that most of our translations end verse 12 with a dash. And I don't know if you're a grammar person or not, but, but that dash there at the end of verse 12 indicates a break. And so most people believe that, that verse 12 begins a comparison. But then, uh, before uh, Paul completes the comparison, he, he wants to make some clarifications. So, so really, verses 12 through 17 uh, essentially act as, as sort of a break, a parenthesis in the thought. And then verse 18 picks up the comparison. So, so verse 18 begins, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. That's basically the point of verse 12. And then he completes the comparison, or really the contrast. He says, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So the first difference in consequence is that we enjoy, those who are in Christ, enjoy eternal life instead of condemnation. So, So once again... Verse 18 begins by mentioning Adam's one transgression. And we know the story, right? That God gave Adam and Eve one rule. That they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course, Adam and Eve transgressed that rule when they disobeyed God's command. They thought they knew better than God. They doubted the goodness of God's purpose and they disobeyed. And as a result... Verse 18 says that they brought condemnation to all humanity. And I said last week that that we oftentimes call this uh, original sin, which entails both the fact that that we are born with a sin nature. We are depraved. But it's not just that we are depraved. We also inherit Adam's guilt. We are born condemned. And that's important truth to remember because, because so many people, if you walk, go around town and ask people, do you believe you're going to heaven? I mean, most people believe that they're born, you know, basically good and basically on their way to heaven. And the only way they can lose that is if they do something really bad to lose the inheritance that they think they have a right to enjoy. But God says you don't have to do anything to be condemned. You are born that way. So John 3.18 says... He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So you are born under the judgment of God. Now, now that doesn't mean, all right, that, that we are not also condemned for our own sins. In fact, the Bible consistently teaches that when we stand before God someday, we will be fundamentally judged by our deeds. And, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, all right, because we could spend our whole time talking about this and, and throwing tomatoes at each other. But, but this is an important factor to remember when you think about the eternal destiny of, of infants or small children who pass away before they are old enough to profess faith in Christ. So, so Dr. McCune, uh, my theology professor, says that while Adamic guilt makes everyone damnable, actual damnation appears to entail deeds as well. 
So, so what he's saying there is that our own transgressions are also necessary. We are born damnable. But the Bible seems to teach that our ultimate damnation is also tied to and, and requires our own sin. So, so for example, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus warned, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay every man according to his deeds. So, so I will be judged by my deeds, not ultimately by Adam's sin. I think as well, um, and this is in the passage in the Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation 20 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. I think when you look at Scripture, when it talks about the final judgment, that the emphasis of that final judgment is always on my deeds. So because of that, Dr. McCune concludes, works play a significant role in God's judgment. As such, since infants do not have such works, it is implied that they may not face his final judgment according to their works. And I think that's a fair conclusion. Now, this is, this is not an issue that the Bible uh, defines super explicitly. So, so, you know, there's room for us to, to have differing opinions on this issue. But I think that's a fair conclusion. That, that final condemnation must include willful transgression. Which, of course, a, a small child, an infant or someone who is severely handicapped and doesn't have any sort of moral awareness cannot commit. So, so I believe that, that they would go to heaven. And so put all the, the mothers and, and so forth at, at ease with that one. But, but that said, the truth of our text still stands. That, that we, don't have to put any, we don't have to do anything to put ourselves on a path to condemnation. You don't have to commit some horrible, egregious sin or live a godless life to, to be on your way to hell. You are born that way. And that includes every person in this room. Now, you might be a relatively good person in comparison to, to other people around you. But we have all inherited Adam's guilt and his depravity. And, and, and therefore, even the best of us have committed plenty of sins, and, and we've all fallen short of God's glory. And so it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, we all need salvation. And, and praise God that verse 18 goes on to say that, that Christ provided that solution, he, he says, through his one act of righteousness. Now, of course, Jesus committed plenty of other acts of righteousness during his life on earth, but, but this verse is specifically thinking about his death on the cross. And I love how 1 Peter 3.18 describes the significance of what Jesus did. It says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So that verse says that in Jesus' one act of righteousness in his death on, his on the cross, he bore the condemnation for our sins. The just took on himself the guilt and the condemnation of the unjust. And he did so to reconcile us to God and to bring us to him. 
And he provided for us the solution that we could never provide for ourselves. And because of that, all who are in Christ will receive a different consequence. I mean, what's the consequence? He says, instead of condemnation, we receive justification of life. Or you could say, uh, more specifically, justification that leads to life. So, so the thought there is that, that I am justified in Christ. I am declared not guilty. And because I have no guilt before God in Christ, I can look forward to eternal life with God in heaven. That's incredible. It's an incredible gift of God that, that I'm no longer headed to hell. I'm instead headed to heaven. But what I do want to emphasize that, that verse 17 says that that gift only belongs to a certain group of people, right? So verse 17 says it only belongs to those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Now, now that is an important emphasis within the context of this passage because verses 18 and 19 are oftentimes used to argue for what is called universalism or the idea that ultimately, at the end of the day, everyone is going to make it to heaven. And you can probably see why that would come up in verses 18 and 19, because verse 18 says there resulted justification of life to all men. And then verse 19 makes the comparison between the one man's disobedience made the many sinners, and then it turns around and says the many will be made righteous. So is Paul saying that the same people, all the same people who were condemned in Adam, will ultimately be saved in Christ? Well, we know that he can't mean that unless he's a schizophrenic, which Paul was not, all right? Because he just said in verse 17 that the difference is who receives the gift of righteousness. And of course, we saw very clearly in chapter 4 that, that justification has to be applied by faith. So, so verses 18 and 19 are not saying that the two groups are identical, but that Adam and Christ certainly affect everyone who is under them. If you are in Adam, you will go to hell. If you are in Christ, you will go to heaven. That's the point. And as such, you must receive the gift of salvation that Jesus provided. And nothing else ultimately determines your eternal destiny other than receiving Christ. And praise the Lord that if you do, verse 18 promises that instead of facing eternal condemnation, you have justification leading to eternal life with God in heaven. That is a massively different consequence. And then verse 19 mentions a second consequence, which is that those who are in Christ enjoy righteousness instead of sin. So verse 19 says, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So, so, so verse 18 focuses on final consequence. Condemnation in hell, eternal life with God in heaven. And verse 18 here uh, backs up and turns to the present standing of the sinner before God. So first, what's he say? The many were made sinners. All who are in Adam are made sinners. Now, it's worth emphasizing here 
uh, that when he talks about being made sinners and made righteous, that the context here is not so much concerned with practical character, right? He's talking about your standing in Adam or in Christ. So, so the point here is not so, so much that we sin, which we do, right? We're all sinners, but it's really our standing before God. And the verb that Paul uses that's translated made, both with made sinners and made righteous, uh, is a verb that, that can mean various things in context. So, so when he says here that those who are in Adam are made sinner, the idea is, is that I am born with the standing of a sinner. You know, it's kind of like if someone is convicted of murder. You know, it doesn't matter what they do the rest of their life. Like, they are going to be known as a murderer, right? You know, if someone rapes someone as a, as a young man, it doesn't matter what they do the rest of their life. They will forever be known as a rapist. And, and, and similarly, what, what God is saying here is that we are born with the status of sinner. Not the status of, of good little Johnny or, or precious little person. No, we are born with the status of sinner. And no matter what good deeds I might do, no matter how much work I might put in, there's nothing I can do to erase that status from my book. But God provided a solution through, as he says in verse 19, the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ. Now, now we don't typically think of Christ's death on the cross as obedience. It's probably not the most common way we think of it, but the Bible talks several times about the obedience of Christ in going to the cross. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then I love uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says, Although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And that's incredible, just incredible thought to ponder. You know, that the Father gives Jesus this command to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And Jesus' divine nature could not be tempted with sin. But his human nature certainly could. And Jesus understood that the pain and the agony that, that awaited him in going to the cross. And his human nature was in a very true sense, the Bible says, tempted to disobey. And yet Jesus learned, and you could say here, learned experientially, obedience to the Father when he went to the cross and submitted to his will in a very difficult way. And in the process, he became the head of a new humanity. And he opened the way, verse 19 says, for all who are in him to be made righteous. Now again, Paul's not saying that we are practically righteous. We're, we're better than we were, but we are still sinners, right? So, so along, all of us are a long ways from being perfectly righteous. But, but if you are in Christ, what Paul is saying is that God no longer sees you based on your sin. You no longer have the status before God of sinner. You now instead have the status before God of righteous. When God sees you, he doesn't first and foremost see every failure and every problem, everything that you've done in the past or will do in the future. He sees you as righteous in his sight. 
And that is a wonderful gift of God. So, so the question, the ultimate question that we need to ask as we, as we think about verses 18 and 19 is whose headship are you under? You know, at the end of the day, like, it doesn't matter what family you came from. It doesn't matter that you're a red-blooded, patriotic American. It doesn't matter that, that you grew up in a church. It doesn't matter that you've done a lot of good things or you haven't done a lot of bad things. It doesn't matter that you're better than the guy down the street or the guy in the next cubicle over to, from you. No, what ultimately matters is, is have you, as verse 17 says, received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And if you have never humbled yourself to to trust in Christ alone, it doesn't matter what you have done or have not done. You are a condemned sinner on your way to hell. That's what God says in his word. But if you receive Christ by faith, it doesn't matter what you have done or have not done or what you will do in the future. You are declared righteous, and you are safe with God, and you are on your way to heaven. And so if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, please receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And you could leave today not, I mean, with the most radical transformation ever, going from under the headship of Adam to the headship of Christ. And if you have received Christ, Never forget the the truth and the quote I I used last week from Sinclair Ferguson, that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. Christ is greater than than all the brokenness of your soul or anything you've ever done. And if you are in Christ, that matters more than anything else. And so he can forgive every sin. He, he He can sustain you through every trial. He can carry you through every temptation. And he will bring you to heaven. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. So if you are in Christ, rest secure. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So so verses 18 and 19 describe two radically different consequences for those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. And then verses 20 and 21 follow by describing two radically different powers which make all of this possible. And these powers uh, in verses 20 and 21 are sin and grace. Now, now we don't generally think of sin and grace as powers, especially with grace. I mean, when you think of a gracious person, sometimes when we think of gracious people, maybe maybe you think of, uh, of a pushover substitute teacher, right? Like we're all in school and Remember, sometimes, like, some substitutes show up, and you're like, oh, man, you know, this is going to be a rough day. And other days, the other substitute shows up, and you're like, this is going to be a fun day, right? You know, because some substitute teachers, they're, you know, they're pushovers, you know, and they're gracious. You know you can get by with anything. And, and so, you know, we would think of that person as a gracious person. They're kind. They're forgiving. And really, what we mean is they're weak. But, but Paul presents a very different picture of the mighty grace of God. It is strong. And he makes this point in two stages. First, verse 20 asserts that grace overpowers sin. Verse 20 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more. Now, to this point in the passage, uh, the passage has said nothing about how the law of Moses fits into all of this. And and for us Gentiles, we, we probably aren't sitting here reading this passage all that concerned about where the law fits into all this. But for Paul's Jewish readers, they would have been very curious. You know, that, that Paul has basically set up all of redemptive history with, with two figures, Adam and Christ, and the Jew wants to know, well, how does the law fit into all of that? And, and Paul uh, agrees with the Jew that the law is very important. But, but he answers here in, in a way regarding the law's role that would have been very shocking to the Jews. He says that the law came in so that the transgression would increase. And it's interesting that the verb he uses for came in is a word that, that has a strongly negative connotation. You know, think of an intruder who comes into your house uninvited with, with the intention of doing harm. And so what he's saying here is that the law intruded on humanity in order to cause transgression to increase. Now, now once again, a sin here is used in the singular. And, and in Romans, that the focus when sin is on the singular is on its reigning power. So, so he's not so much concerned here in verse 20 uh, about the increase in the number of sins. No, no instead, he, he's concerned with the, the power of sin. It's reigning power. And so Paul is saying that the intrusion of the law, that the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, the intrusion of the law heightened the power of sin in the world. Now, I want to be clear, and we've talked about this a few times in the series, that the law itself is not an evil intruder, right? I mean, God gave the law, and the law was a good gift. And we see a lot of times in the Old Testament that Israel celebrated the law as God's gracious blessing to them, because, because it allowed them to, it showed them how to, who God is, and what God loves, and what God hates, and, and it was a means for them to, to enjoy fellowship with God. So the law itself is good, but, but in the hands of sinners, the law also increased the reigning power of sin. How is that? Well, we'll look back at what Paul said in chapter 4, verse 15. He says in chapter 4, verse 15, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, so Paul's point there is that the law defines righteousness, right? It tells us what is right and what is wrong. And once God defines his standard, well, then when you break that standard, it becomes a whole lot more significant. And every parent, every teacher gets this, right? You know, so, so kids are foolish, you know? Especially little boys are foolish, all right? And they do a lot of dumb stuff. And, and obviously, you, you want to correct foolishness so that it stops. But, but generally speaking, hopefully, you, you have different consequences for foolishness than you do for outright rebellion, you know? Like... A kid says something dumb or inappropriate that you've, you, you can't create enough fences to stop all the dumb things that kids will say, all right? So, so you correct foolishness and say, don't say that ever again. But, but if you've said, don't say this, and then they look at you and say it, 
Well, well that is a totally different ballgame, right? Because they have rebelled knowingly against your rule. And Paul says that when God gave the law, it opened the door for that sort of rebellion among people. And in so doing, the law put a magnifying glass on human depravity. And it it demonstrated how desperately we need a Savior. And by the way, that's a good thing to remember when you read Old Testament stories about failure. So for example, I mean, the story of David and Bathsheba is not just in your Bible to to show you the the evil and and the power of sexual temptation. Obviously, that's an important application of the story of David and Bathsheba. Yeah, but that story is also there to show you that God gave a law in the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. And here's David, you know, the, 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 the sweet psalmist, the king of Israel, the, the recipient of the Davidic covenant, and he disobeyed the command about committing adultery. Like probably the one that's easiest of all ten. He committed it. And and so David is not the Savior. Instead, David needs salvation. And we all need salvation. And and so remember that sort of thing when you read through those stories. They're not just there to teach you morality. They're there to point you to a need for Christ. And verse 20, and so verse 20 reflects that that important emphasis that that the law created a, a terrible mess. It created a terrible mess. And the Old Testament talks about this all the time. That Israel failed far more than they succeeded. And the law did not produce a righteous nation. It produced a sinful nation. And so, you know, you, you can easily, as you watch the story of the Old Testament, Israel declines. They spiral from a nation at, at one point with, with power and strength and glory and hope. And to by the end of Nehemiah, It's just a handful, a small community clinging to life. And why is that? Well, it's because of the reigning power of sin and the destruction that it causes. And of course, the rest of us are no better. The reign of sin is oppressive and destructive. And it leaves people miserable and hopelessly condemned. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story, right? Because Paul says in verse 20... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's a great line. And the idea there, you could also say, is that where sin abounded, grace superabounded. So, so yes, sin is a powerful master with devastating consequences. And every human civilization, not just Israel, every human civilization it is a testimony to sin's destructive power. Because every society is filled with hatred, violence, narcissism, and suffering. The mess that sin creates is overwhelming. But again, there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And Jesus overwhelmed the darkness in his death and resurrection. And so all who are in Christ, we are declared righteous. And someday he will return. And again, as, as Joy to the World says... There's coming a day when no more will sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. So every place that the curse has reached, Christ is going to fix all of it. 
He's going to overpower every consequence of the fall, every issue that sin has created. And we should be so thankful today for the mighty grace of God, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Now, God's grace has overpowered my damnation, overpowered it. And God's grace is at work to fix God's people. You know, we see that in our own lives, right? We, we see it all the time in, in people's lives here in our church. And God's grace someday is going to fix every consequence of sin and eradicate every effect of the curse from his creation. And, and so I think it's worth emphasizing, it is worth emphasizing, that, that the gospel is not just a strategy to better your life. You know, sometimes people are struggling. Their marriage is falling apart. They're depressed. And they see the gospel as a way to help them turn over a better leaf, a new leaf, and, and do better. And so the gospel is, you know, ultimately becomes sort of a self-help method, a way to think better and act better so that you can be better and feel better. And the gospel is so much more than that. It is the power of God to salvation. It is the power of God that will someday transform everything in creation. So praise the Lord for the superabounding grace of God in the gospel. And then the second, uh, second stage of Paul's argument is that grace replaces death with life. Verse 21 says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this verse uh, both really finishes the thought of verse 20, but, but it also puts a bow on the entirety of verses 12 through 21. And it does so through a powerful contrast. So first, I mean, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin has reigned in death. That's dark. And, uh, and, and its reign is over all of creation. I like how Frank Thielman summarizes the point. He says, sin reigned in the sphere of death. Sin generates death and rules as a harsh taskmaster over the morbid kingdom it has created. And the, death, the reign of death, the reign of sin and death really is morbid. And again, we don't have to look far to see the destructive effects that sin has on people's lives and on society as a whole. And yet, even though sin is terribly destructive, I mean, we watch people all the time, and sometimes to a lesser extent, we watch ourselves just continue to walk in step with it. You know, sin is blinding. Sin is enslaving. And it causes people to march towards destruction and death. And of course, eventually people die. And those without Christ will face eternal death and damnation in hell. So the reign of sin is powerful. And the reign of sin is most evident, its power is most evident in the reign of death over the unbeliever. But again, we can be so thankful that God's grace is greater. And so as powerful as sin is, Paul ends the chapter by saying, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a lot of prepositional phrases right there. But, but all of them are, are significant and meaning. So, so let's begin with the last one. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the key to all of this. 
that, that sin and death exerted a ruthless, cocky power. But then Jesus entered the world. He was born as a man. And he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, and in his death, he overpowered sin and death. As he paid the price for our redemption and shattered sin's power with his resurrection from the dead. So Christ came, Christ conquered, and as a result, he gives righteousness to those who are in him. He gives us his perfect righteousness. It is it is imputed to us. It is credited to us as we've talked about in this series. And so I am no longer condemned by my sin. I am credited with the righteousness of Christ. I am not guilty before God. And because of that, I can look forward to eternal life. And I'm going to live with Christ forever and ever. And, and, and I'm going to be with him for, in heaven and, and in his glory I have a great inheritance and a certain hope. And all of that, folks, all of that is summed up in the reign of grace. Folks, God's grace is not weakness. Anyone who tries to use the grace of God to to basically mean that that God has given me a a ticket to to live how I want and do what I want, and chapter 6 is going to obliterate that sort of thinking. But, but here it is right here, that God's grace is powerful. You know, and, and so God's grace is not people-pleasing. It's not weakness. It is strong. It is effective. It is. It accomplishes its purpose. But of course, it's not just that. It's also filled with compassion and love and mercy. So praise God today for the reign of grace. And we should all be so thankful that God provided a second Adam to undo the mess of the first Adam. And we should also be thankful that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. So so don't leave today without making sure that you really are in Christ. You can't fix your own mess. There's nothing you can do. You know, to go back to my introduction, you can't cheer loud enough You can't dress up fancy enough. There's not enough you can do to to make yourself a Christian. You just have to receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. And if you do that, you can belong to Christ. You can be forever forgiven of your sins, safe from the judgment of God, and you can look forward to the day that you are with Christ in heaven. So if you are not in Christ, receive him today. And then as as we think about uh, this season of the year, as we think about Christmas, we should all give thanks that Jesus left the glories of heaven to become a man so that he could be the second Adam. Now, now we don't generally think of this as a a primary Christmas passage, uh, but, but this passage really does sum up the significance of why Jesus had to be born and what it all means. I mean, Adam created a terrible mess but Jesus had to be, became one of us so that he could start a new race. And he did it. He, he conquered sin and death. And, and so sin no longer reigns in death. Instead, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. That is a wonderful gift and, and reason for us to give thanks to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Christ. 
Thank you, God, for the hope that we have in him, the hope of eternal life. And Father, I pray that if there's any here that do not know Christ as Savior, that today they would receive him and be born again. And so, Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And God, we thank you that Jesus was born to die on a cross and to fix all that is broken, to reconcile all things to himself. Help us to rejoice in that gift. Help us to live with the assurance that it provides. And help us to be zealous to preach the gospel to others. In Jesus' name, amen.